everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Living Courageously Exposed, hosted by Big Inside Out Adventures and yours truly, Jennifer Day Saunders, my friends, Tommy J. Today, I am so excited to bring to you another beautiful soul who I met in a really unlikely situation. And as I sat down and talked with this person on the on the other end of the microphone today, I learned some really cool things about her. And so I'm happy to introduce you today, Val Whitey. Now, Val happens to be the mom of two. She um, is a perpetual learner. She's a beautiful soul, and she's a former WNBA player. So she's got this great bag of experience to share from. And as I spoke with her, she her stories were intriguing to me. And they're ones that I feel like we all can relate to at some point or another. And that she's got valuable wisdom. Now, Val also happens to be a speaker. And the message that she shares is very similar to my own and a lot of other people out there. But I love the stories, the personal experiences that she has behind her speaking. And and that's what I am so excited to bring to you today. So, Val, with that, is there anything else you want to know about you? Um, Thank you for that great introduction, Jay. And (laughs) I have a J in my life as well. My um, oldest son, we call him Baby J. Oh, I love it. I have a few friends who call me Baby J, and I really like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we have that in common. (laughs) That's funny. All right. So, so Val, tell us about Val as a younger person. What was life like for you as a child, as a teenager? Well, I grew up in a very loving home. I too, my, my parents are still married, been married for almost, uh, well, for over 50 years. Wow. Congratulations. Um, thank you. A great role model for me. But um, I had a hard childhood because I was bullied heavily in school. So I never really loved myself, although parents always tell you how beautiful you are and how great you are. But I never really truly uh, loved me for being me. So as a teenager, I was... Um, Always talk my age. I'm six three now. Okay. So I was probably six six feet as a seventh grader. Wow. Eighth grade, and then by the time I reached ninth grade, I was six three. I was always taller, bigger, very shy. Um, which now look back, as I was more of an introvert, and I was easy pickings for for bullies. Right. What did you get bullied about? Um, I got bullied about being tall, quiet smart, um, not pretty enough. Um, my skin was dark. I bullied by, you know, about that. Um, I was really, um, sometimes a teacher's pet teachers gravitated towards me because I was a quiet kid, but I was, you know, a smart kid. Right. And so all those things, um, I was just always self-conscious about what I wasn't instead of, um, what I was. So, it was even just hard um, walking into a room because I had a particular bully. Every time I walk into a room, he would yell out um, Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong was a video game back in the day that we right. played. The lead character in the game was this gorilla. So every time I walked into a room, he would yell that out and everybody would look at me and laugh. And oh. that was just one of my experiences. So what was that like for you? Like when, I mean, here you are, you're young, you're, Impressionable, you want to be accepted. Like, what was the feeling when they yelled out, Here's Donkey Kong? Um, you just want to hide. Um, mm-hmm. You don't want to be seen, and it's hard not to be seen when you're six feet tall and right? 11 or 12 years old. So, you make a great point. As you know, I, I remember my kids are not six three, like, I'm five, barely five four. <laughs> so, their dad is six three. But I, you know, I would often say to them, stand up, stand up. Is that something that you would do to kind of shrink away? Like, did you try and hide your size or how did you try to hide? I would, to this day, I think I slouch. It took me a long time. And I mean, not until I was an adult to like being tall. And still today I will get comments about, you know, how tall are you? Do you play basketball or what's the weather like up there? And it kind of always brings back those feelings of wanting to hide and not be noted. So, um, that was probably a reason why in seventh grade I went out for cheerleading because I knew, that, <laughs> I, I knew that's what guys and what, what boys like. The popular girls did it and maybe somehow, you know, I could be accepted. So 
that I was one that was part of my motivation for that. Yeah. So reaching for those things where you felt like you could belong and be a part of, find some popularity. Um, how did that work for you? It really didn't work out too well. <laughs> no. uh, well, no. I thought it was good, but uh, but I think it's kind of an odd scene to have someone so tall and be a cheerleader. Maybe that's what it was. But I tried out, and I remember practicing every day after school, all the cheers and everything, the tally junior high. And they post a list on the, on the wall. It's, t- it's 12 people who made it and then one mascot. Okay. And... They listed 12 people. I didn't see the name, and I was like, oh, look at the mascot. I didn't even get listed for the mascot. And I remember the, who, who got the mascot. Um, what was her name? Lana, Lonnie Turner or something like that. And she was really short petite. So there was no way I would have fit into that mascot uniform. Anyway, it would have been like wearing capri pants. <laughs> capri pants suit. Right. But um, I just remember um, after that getting cut and then going to math class. And my uh, math teacher, Mr. Prillman, said, hey, um, you want to try basketball? And I said, sure. And that's, you know, that's how I got started playing basketball. But honestly, then women's sports wasn't um, really pushed. And I didn't think, oh, well, it's not really cool playing basketball, but I'm going to try it. Anyway, I have no idea why I tried basketball, why I was brave enough to try it, because I didn't really have any interest in it at all. Interestingly, both my parents played basketball. Um, My dad played in college. And then my mother played in high school and had an opportunity to play college as well and turned it down, but they never pushed the sport on me. Okay. So, say, so they played, how did you not have an interest, but they weren't pushing in? They kind of sounds like they let you develop your own talents and skills based off of your own interests. Uh, yeah, it, it could be that, or maybe I just wasn't really athletic because I used to fall <laughs> a lot and stuff. <laughs> it was like, oh, it's at, you know, sports is not in her future. Let's keep sending her to rocket science camp, which I went to. Right, so, because you did say you are smart. Uh, yes. So, I, I don't know. If I, I think I work hard. I don't know how smart I am. I, I try to outwork um, everything that I do. Right. So let me ask you this question. I used to coach seventh grade basketball, and we had some girls who were tall, not not six feet or six three, but they were tall. And at that age, it's like their height came like all of a sudden and they were kind of gangly on the court and trying to get used to all these, you know, the length of their limbs and running with the ball. Was that your experience as well? I mean, you just said you were kind of, you fell and kind of clumsy, but was that your experience on the basketball court at that time? Oh, it definitely was. Um, even through high school, my parents said I was falling Literally. all the time and Basketball was a very, very confusing sport for me. Like I used to score for the team. Every time we switched halftime, we switched halves, and I would still think it was my basket, and I would score for the other team. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, this is not just one game. It happened a lot. Or I'd be wide open on for a layup and just shoot the ball over the backboard, not even like hitting the backboard. Right. So I was, I was horrible, and. Um, I was going to say, how did that help your esteem? Like, you're already, um, sounds like, unsure of yourself and, like, you're happy. How did your coaches and, and teammates handle that? Like, were they supportive? Did it make you feel worse? Like, how did that How did that go down for you? It's interesting. I don't remember anyone, like, saying, oh, my goodness, you suck. I don't remember that. And I don't remember being, like, uh, down about it. It was That's just kind of like something I'm doing. And it's interesting because I'm a perfectionist, but I wasn't really concerned about being perfect in basketball, maybe because I just, oh, maybe I'm going to do this two years and then move on. Um, it, it wasn't a serious thing. It's not like today, you know, with kids, if you're not good by the time you come out the womb, parents are panicking. Right, you know, right. Private coaches and stuff. It wasn't really like that. It was two days a week of practice and maybe, you know, a game during the week. And I, know, and I was just running up and down the court. I always did feel self-conscious when my, you know, my bully, my personal bully, played on the um, boys' basketball team. Oh, wow. We had a really good boys' basketball team. Actually, one of the players who played on that team ended up playing in the NBA. So they had a, they could beat probably most high school teams, and they were seventh and eighth graders. So I was I remember being self-conscious about that, but I don't remember being so hard on myself that I had to be um, good. Um, what happened was my dad saw something in me that I didn't see and started waking me up at 6 a.m. on Saturdays. He oh. would tell me, 
um, to work on my game. Right. So I work on my skills and um, I still didn't know how strong I was. And he would show me how to go strong to the basket. And I didn't know how to do that because when you are just learning or never, if you've never been athletic before, you don't really know about your body. So you don't know the power that you have. Yeah. So he, okay, I love that statement right there. That when you haven't tried something, and I'm going to use something, like if you haven't done something before, you don't know how powerful you are or what capabilities you have until you try it. I love that. Thank right. you for pointing that out. Yes. yes. And, and being big and strong, I didn't know that if I go dribble hard to the basket, people might move out the way. I was still playing. I guess I was still shrinking in my size, even on sure. the basketball. Sure. Well, and I think, I think that's probably a normal thing for the vast majority of us when when we practice, you know, a behavior for so long, it, it doesn't just disappear overnight, you know, most of the time. So, uh, again, great points. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so your dad's waking you up at 6 o'clock. He, you're now practicing skills. You're learning that, wow, maybe, maybe I do have something here that I didn't know that I had. What feeling started coming from that? Like, did you think, oh, maybe I, maybe I really could be a basketball player or, and I'm going to push harder? Or was it just like, this is something that's really cool. Um, I'm going to go back to my books. You know, what started, what was the next, um, like, steps for you learning all these new skills? So I didn't really start liking, um, really knowing I could be good at this sport until 10th grade. And I had a setback, actually, when I was in eighth grade. My dad always had me um, playing against guys. Uh -huh. And I was in eighth grade, summertime, and we, I always played this court just outside of Philadelphia. And that's where all the good ballers would go. I didn't know that at the time because I probably wouldn't have stepped on the court. But my dad <laughs> really good about put, pushing me out there regardless. And I got this rebound, um, offensive rebound, and I scored on this guy, and he fell. And I mean, mind you, I'm about 13 years old, uh, struggling with my self-esteem, feeling feminine, and you know, being always the biggest woman, a girl in the room. And right. he said to me, "You're not a girl, you're a man." So that, so that's that was like, and I'm finally feeling strong. And he says that, and I'm like, dang. You know, what does it mean to be a girl and strong? Um, does that mean I'm a man? You know, what does that mean? Because I, uh, why, why does this guy react, react to me? At the time, I had no idea. Now I look back, you know, fragile, ego, ego. He couldn't really handle, you know, that happening to him. It was more embarrassing. Right. But, you know, the 13-year-old right. um, young girl, um, that was devastating. Absolutely. And so what did you, what did you do with that? Like, how do you even take that apart and unpack it? And like, where do you go from there? I, I struck back. I didn't, I remember the rest of that game, I didn't really play as hard. I played more, you know, more timid. Um, there weren't any other people on the court to, like, the, if I saw that happen, you know, I'm on the court and I'm watching the game and I, I saw a little, that happened to a young person, I would actually go up to them. Right. Say, oh, that's, you know, that's not right. That um, He's just, you know, he's afraid and made him look bad and he couldn't handle that. But um, no one said that to me. So I just kind of internalized that for a very long time and struggled with being strong and powerful and also being, you know, a woman at the same time. And then, um, and this is funny, I'm going to forget to this, dimming my light around men. You know, I would, you know, just that comes up a lot. I mean, I'm online dating. I mean, I'm actually taking a break from that. And I had a conversation with a guy and I was just joking with him. He was telling me how good a basketball player he was and how he could beat me. I always get um, challenged to one-on-one -on -one games. Never, <laughs> never, never fails, no matter what happens until I die. But um, I said, okay, well, where do you play? He was like, oh, I play in the Bainbridge Island Recreational League. I was like, oh, no, I don't think you can beat me. And he like unfriends me, unfollows me, whatever you do on unswipe or swipe right. left, whatever you do on online dating. So, I mean, I was honestly just being, I was just kidding, but he couldn't even handle that joke. And it just showed me like, do I have to always dim my light to make men feel safe? Or is this, you know, is this the kind of is, is this normal and so i'm at i'm 46 had that same experience almost that i had as a 13 year old um girl okay so 
So you've had that experience now. What is your answer to that? Like, I'm just going to ask that question back to you is, do you have to dim your light around men? And not just you, but like, what advice would you give to, not advice, but words of wisdom would you give to other women who may be feeling like that? I think it's unfortunately um, part of our society and and it's it's it could be more subtle things that happen. It has to be more subtle things that happen that women experience. Um, I just and my advice is just proverbial: don't slouch. Um, keep your don't dim your light. Don't don't. It was a quote I read. Um, keep shining bright, even though it may hurt the eyes of others. It's kind of in that context. I like that because, because you can still you can still try to shrink back not just because of a man made a comment but just because you're in an environment where you maybe you're highly accomplished right and um maybe you had a job that you're overqualified for and you um instead of doing your job that you know can be done maybe you try to blend in with others by not by not shining as brightly so i i think it's it's peer pressure sometimes not to um to shine it's also peer pressure because you don't want to hurt other people's feelings. And then we're also in an age where everybody has to get a ribbon and be a winner that you feel like if I'm showing I'm a winner or if I'm succeeding, then I'm, everyone else is going to feel bad. So I know I was, that was a roundabout way of saying stay true to yourself. Very cool. Okay. So dimming your light. So now you're in high school. You're playing ball. You did share an experience with me. Uh, do you remember which one I'm talking about? About being awesomely intimidated and the co-teacher at a tryout. Oh yeah. So back to my my father. Um, he he could write a book on how to get your child to succeed by putting them in situations where they will be failing because <laughs> that's what he did so well. And back then. Um, you could go to USA tryouts, USA basketball tryouts without being invited. Okay. I don't even know how he found it out, why he would even, why that light bulb went off in his head. But he took me out to Colorado Springs. Um, actually, I think my mother was there too, and maybe my little sister, and at the Olympic Training Center. And it was a tryout for one of the big national, international tournaments for USA basketball. So there were women there that were um, legends that are in the Hall of Fame now okay. that are, are playing college basketball. Some of them were professional. And I went out there, um, I believe I was the summer, either, either before my ninth grade year or after my, my ninth grade year. And basically, I really shouldn't have been there. I was out of my league. And, <laughs> um, I just remember... Um, so, so you thought. Yeah. And when I asked him later about why he did that. Um, well, obviously just to, to show me what it is. Um, I want to be at that level, but also he wanted to put me around other women like me because I didn't see a lot of people my size and my, um, you know, strong and athletic. I didn't see a lot of people like that. So they were, he was showing me other role models uh, as well. I really like, when I hear you talk about your dad, like I have this intense desire to meet him. <laughs> he, he sounds like the, I love how he, continually like brought out and helped you see the vision of you and and what could be possible and uh, this whole thing of taking you to these tryouts so that you could be among people who were like you like that's such a beautiful thing yeah um at the time i didn't really like them too much right but i, I can imagine <laughs> but when i look back um i'm really you know really grateful because i think as a parent um we don't want our children to feel any any pain, any, um, any failure. We want them to just go through, you know, life not feeling less than. And right. he would be definitely in a situation where, where I felt less than, and I got my butt kicked. I mean, like Cheryl Miller was there and um, Teresa Edwards. These are, you know, women that are legends and that I look up to right. now as a player. Was it exciting so, though? Even though you were scared, was it was it exciting to see these women? They were like, "Whoa, these are my these are my idols, but people that I aspire to." Okay, so the crazy part is, I had no idea who they were until after <laughs> back. So that was a good thing. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was like, I like, oh, they were there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, so what happens is at those trials, you get a jersey and a um, with a number on it. Okay. And at the end of the day. They put a list on of which people are invited back to continue the tryouts. 
And so I go up and look at the list and I'm not on the list and I start crying and which is really funny because I'm out of my league, right? Um, I have no, I shouldn't be lacing my shoes up with these women. And I'm crying and, and the Stanford coach saw me crying. And that's the first time she ever saw me. And I went to a small all girls Catholic school in Wilmington, Delaware, where my graduating class was 52 girls. So there was no way that I would be on her radar. Um, just, there's just no way. So that's, that was the first time she saw me was my reaction to getting cut. And then um, she also mentioned she liked how fast I backpedaled. So, <laughs> so yeah, so my, my message to kids is like, you never know what a coach is watching, looking at. Um, you never know what they see, you know, what catches someone's eyes. Not always the best player. I was definitely not the best player on the, on the board. And she caught my eye showing how I reacted to um, um, a disappointment as well as how well I backpedaled. And I mean, well, yeah. in the rest- a couple of unlikely things, huh? Yeah. And, and, and you and I spoke about this. And, and this, those are what you call, I call them, and I've heard people call them divine appointments, um, doors that um, God opens, um, doors uh, that you didn't even know that were available that, um, that, that come to fruition years, years later. Like I said, there's no reason that Tar Vanderbilt would have found me otherwise. Right. I'm at a USA basketball tryout where I don't belong. She just happens to be in an area where she sees me, look at my name on the board and, and you know, and be upset about it. I love it. And I love so, the word divine appointments. <laughs> you don't always know the, the reason or the purpose and yet down the road we get to see the fruition. That, that's really cool. Okay, so you've now had this experience, and uh, you know what? What's the next? What's the next phase for you? So the next phase, and was, and you would think I would have, would have become more motivated from that. I don't think that stoked any motivation for me. In, in fact, I didn't even hear from Tar until maybe my junior year in high school. Okay. So um, I think I'm in my freshman year, and. I'm at basketball tryouts, and I didn't hear this, which I'm glad I didn't, but apparently someone said about me was that I would never be a good basketball player. I was, oh, never wow. gonna, I was like one of the worst basketball players they've ever seen. And I'm so glad because that's something you don't want to hear, right? Especially right. starting out in your, in your journey as an athlete. I mean, nobody wants to hear that, but it's, I think, particularly tough for people who don't have the best esteem. And yeah. can you imagine where you and I might be sitting if we'd have had that conversation or if you had heard that and like, cause you probably would have believed it at that point. Oh, I would have. I wasn't at that point where you, you tell me something, Oh, you're not going to, you're never going to do this. And I'm feeling great about myself. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm going to show you. No, I would have been like, you know what? You're right. Um, I don't really want to play this game anyway. And I really didn't want to play the game. Right. I have no idea why I kept coming back. I'd have to ask my parents <laughs> <laughs> about that. Well, your dad kept taking you to things. Yeah. Yeah, he kept exposing me. They always, and then after a while, I wanted to be, um, wanted to play against the best. Gotcha. So I, I, my goals became more lofty than just being the best player in Delaware. I wanted to be an All-American. That was always my, I, I wanted my team to be, my high school team to be nationally ranked. It never did, but that was always checking every, every Wednesday for the USA basketball, USA Today basketball rankings for high school. I said, it sounds like it gave you a drive though and something to work towards, even if if it never happened, it gave you that fire to really keep moving. It really did. I I didn't know that I was good at basketball until between my sophomore, my freshman and sophomore year when I went to this basketball camp where coaches were and I had a good camp and I got my first letter in the mail uh, from a basketball coach, and it was from Princeton University. Wow. And that's, it's like, oh, okay, I can be good at this, and I can go to college for this, and that's that really started motivating me. As okay, a so you get a letter in the mail. It's from Princeton University saying, we want you. What is your reaction to that? I was like, wow, this is amazing, and you can play basketball in college? I mean, that was just – it was kind of like I didn't even know because my parents didn't really say that. I mean, now you got – parents telling their third grader, you know, you're going to be the next LeBron James. You know, right. people, they, they weren't really saying you can play. They didn't tell me. I don't know. 
they pushed me to get outside my comfort zone, but they didn't really say you can play here one day or you can play for free one day. I this just, is what you could do, right? So did that open did that open up a whole new mind space or vision for you? Like, how did that help you other than being like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. And you can play in college. Yeah, I don't think people understand like when you start, when you validate a child, it, motiva- it motivates them more. Some I, some coaches feel like, oh, you you can give too many compliments to a ch- to someone and you got to constantly break someone down before building, building them up. But I feel when you let, when you show someone, when that light bulb comes on, excuse me, the world, the, the sky's the limit with what how they can motivate themselves. So I, I'm all about positive coaching and building kids up because you have to show them how you see them. Yeah. And that letter from Princeton showed me how Princeton saw me, and then I started to see myself how they saw me. That's really great. And so you're able to go on. Um, you play in college. Where did you play in college? At Stanford. Okay, Stanford. And if I remember correctly, it's been a it's been a little bit since I looked at your stats, but you did really well at Stanford. Like you had you had a good showing. Yeah, we won two national championships. Um, four. That was Pac-10. Four Pac-10 championships, and then when I left Stanford, I was all-time leading scorer and rebounder in Pac-10 history. Now those records have since been broken. But um, I had a had a great career. I had great teammates, and obviously great coaches as well. That's really cool. Like in my head, I just heard, "Thank you, Princeton, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for for helping fan the flames that your dad had already started." And wow, going from you don't like basketball, gangly to four Pac-10 championships, all-time leading scorer, two national champ, and all the all the other you know accolades that you gathered while you were there. That's really awesome. So. How does the next step play in? Because we already let the people know that you got to play in the WNBA. So when I graduated Stanford, they didn't have women's basketball in the United States. Okay. At that time, I think they had one or two leagues that tried and failed. So I went overseas. So, so my degree from Stanford was biology slash, and I was pre-med. And okay. the plan was to... Um, what happened was I got into several medical schools, and I chose one, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. And at that time, it was the number three school in the country. I said, hey, I want to defer admissions. I guess they call them gap years now. It took two years. I want to go play professional basketball. I'm going to come back to go to medical school. So I ended up playing two years of professional basketball, liked it. WNBA, not WNBA, ABL came here, the American Basketball League. I played in that league from 96 to 98. The league folded. And then I went into the WNBA from 99 to 2002. So I never went back to school. I just, I loved basketball more. Right. And and did you enjoy your time in the NBA? Like, what, what were some of the highlights? What were maybe some of the things that you didn't enjoy as much about it? What I enjoyed just being a part of a team um, and then traveling and I love being in basketball shape and I love, you know, just the game of basketball, the physicality of it. Um, you could be having a bad day and practice and throw a few elbows and you feel so good afterwards. <laughs> you know? I, I got to write that down. Throw a few elbows and you, and you feel better. <laughs> yeah. What I didn't like was that um, my whole identity was around Val as a basketball player. Gotcha. I didn't like that. So when you're when you're a student athlete, you, you got the student part of it. For me, it was a balance. Right. When I became just Val the athlete, I did not have a balance in, you know, who Val was and how much I liked myself was based on how well I was playing. Oh, you know, I really love that you that you just pointed that out because I know there have been areas in my life where I have identified with the things that I'm doing and how well or not well that I'm doing them. And I would imagine that a a lot of our listeners, probably the vast majority, have experienced similar things. And so I appreciate you being aware enough and saying, this was the only thing that identified me and it didn't feel right. And especially if I'd had a bad day um, on the court. So thank you for pointing that out. So how did you you overcome or move past that? um, I'm more than just a basketball player. That took me um, having my first son, Joseph, during, you know, during 
in 2001, which was when I was still playing. And to be honest, that's something I've struggled with, you know, forever. Not just after, during basketball, but after basketball as well. Because people always ask you, what are you, you know, what are you doing now? That's, that's always not with your question, or what do you do? And so what do you do? What do I do? You knew that was coming. Well, yeah. Now that now that the basketball phase is over, and and you got to you know have that experience and realize like how amazing at the sport you really were, and you know there's always the next phase. So what is what is the phase that you're currently in right now? Phase I'm in now is I have like a I call it more of a side business because it's still pretty small. Um, I had a business before I moved out here. For 10 years, I owned a gym that closed. That's another story. Yeah. We'll get to but um, my side, my business I have now is that I run after school enrichment basketball programs for girls. And it's not just basketball I teach. We, they don't realize it, but they're learning um, life skills, um, empowerment, leadership as well. And these aren't kids that um, have any exposure to the game. So honestly, it makes me a better teacher. And a better coach because I get to break the game down really small and really ridiculous, but also making it fun at the same time. And what I found is when I teach from teaching girls, especially, is that we don't know how to compete um, starting out or be aggressive. And I mean, just that's one thing I had to learn my exposure to sports early on. So a lot of my drills are um, there's always some kind of competitive component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, you, you can compete without scrimmaging against each other, whether it's relay races or playing tag. So normally in first session, people are afraid to touch each other. But by session 10, girls are knocking each other down, which I, I mean, I love. You know, people <laughs> might be crazy by saying that, but I love that. And it's okay. You, it's okay. you can be a friend and be competitive help her up afterwards and you're also being a better friend because you're playing hard against each other and you're yeah. helping them get better. And what I hear you saying is that they're not just knocking each other down because you're saying go be aggressive, but you're teaching them how to do what you learned how to do and that's to step into who they are, into their strength, into their talents and their abilities. And and basketball is a physical sport and you know when you're really boxing out or standing up to hold a post or you you bump around and, and sometimes you get knocked down. So that's what I hear you saying is like, that's what you really enjoy is watching these girls finally step into their power and play a game of basketball in a confident kind of way and without the cowering that we do when we're unfamiliar. Yeah, it's always, it's funny. I always get when something happens, someone knocks someone down. The first time it happens, um, the person who gets knocked down, raise her hand and say, Amy pushed me. <laughs> And it's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the game. It's, it could be, it's not even, we're not even scrimmaging. We're doing some kind of drill where I'm teaching them how to hold the ball while getting pushed. And it's like, you know, top everything. I say, you know, that's part of the game. I want you to be aggressive, but you're making each other better because you are um, not only having fun, but you're, you're giving it a hundred percent. And, but it's always funny. And someone's always going to raise their hand and, and come, you always get told on. Coach Val, she pushed me or she hit me in the mouth like, hey, I know, I'm sorry. I know it hurts, but, you know. Yeah, let's check it out. So I have this question that you and I actually didn't talk about, but it keeps coming to my mind. So I'm going to ask it and hope that you're okay that that I'm asking it. Um, You know, you talked about having this identity of just being a basketball player and, and in the society that we live in, I feel like we we have these ideals where we expect these people who are in more, let's just say, you know, quote unquote, glamorous positions. They're more famous, um, well-known to like, once they step out of these things to just be living these high end lives and all of that. And so when you, do you bump up against people who are like, Hey, what are you doing now? And when you say I ran a gym or I run um, these empowerment programs for girls teaching skills through basketball, do you find, like, what are people's reaction? And are you okay saying, this is what I do now? Or do you feel that kind of pushback of like, well, you haven't made anything of your life? Do you run into that? I do. I think mainly um, 
when I say I went to Stanford and then people like assume, at least I, and I, even for myself, I should have this amazing job. Um, I don't know, some, some C-suite executive. And so I, I get that, uh, you know, a lot. And I, I put that pressure on myself because when you go to a school um, like Stanford, a lot of your classmates are like reinventing or finding a cure for cancer or something. So it's a lot, I, I personally feel a lot of pressure for that. Yeah, I, I, I've wondered about that. And so how do you, like, because I really feel like you're doing beautiful work, not being a C-suite kind of person and that the work you're doing is powerful and it's important and we need it. And so how do you, um, the, the only word that comes to mind is, is combat. How do you combat those feelings or overcome that for yourself or when other people maybe try to push that on you like you should be doing more with your life? How do you continue to stand in your power as the professional basketball player now in this position, still owning all of who you are? Well, I have to um, reassure myself of who I belong to. You know, I'm a child of God. Oh, I and, love it. Um, and he made me unique and I'm wonderfully made. And I am here to impress him. I'm, you know, I'm here to... Um, try to be as much like Jesus as I can. And I fail every day at that, believe me. But um, that's where my identity lies and should lie. Now, is it always so beautiful when it, when I, practical when I try it? No. Right. I have feelings of low self-esteem and what, why am I doing this? And, you know, why aren't I as successful? And um, gosh, what is it? Comparison is the enemy of or the thief of joy. So when we compare, I forget who said that, when we compare ourselves to each, you know, to others, um, horizontally, we lose the joy of what life is, of being your best and knowing, like I said, you know, who I belong to and right. who I should be to and who I ultimately work for. Right. Well, and I love that, who I ultimately work for. I've got to make that note. Who I ultimately work for. I want to really just say thank you for being willing to answer that question because I know that's probably a tough one. And the podcast of Living Courageously Exposed, it's not always about that we've overcome hard things and now we live these superhero lives and everybody looks up to us. And it's more about how we're actually showing up every day in our lives, given our triumphs and our trials and, and that really sometimes we're still just getting knocked down and tumbled around in the dirt. And yet we continue to say, I love you said that I am a child of God. I'm uniquely made. I, I have gifts and talents that are, you know, mine to share and that you know who you work for. Um, for me, that's that's part of the ultimate living courageously exposes that you continue to show up as the best self that you can be every day and that you're sharing that with other kids and, and people. And um, I just want to say thank you for being willing to share that uh, I know that's probably not always the easiest question to answer and I think it's beautiful it's real and it's what is thanks Jay so anything else you want to tell us about that um, how you know words of wisdom that you would give to other people who may be experiencing similar things maybe not in such high profile kind of ways but you know we we all get to experience that at some point or another yeah I I really feel that um, it's so easy to get caught up in, uh, you know, this day and age, the social media, of, you know, Facebook. Everyone is putting their best face forward right. on Facebook. And um, if we're looking left and right and continuing to compare ourselves to what, you know, everyone else is posting and their perfect family, you know, the perfect husband, you know, their vacate people's vacations and it's, it's hard. But like I said, I think people just realize that they are on this earth for a purpose and um, that they are loved by, you know, God loves them. Then it makes it, um, I didn't say it makes it easier, but it it just gives you more. When I think that way, I feel, I I see my life differently than if if I look and see, you know, one of my friends just got a promotion and, or this other person just bought a new, the new Tesla, 
right? You know, <laughs> when I know that I'm here for a purpose and I'm in exactly in the spot that God wants me to be, and it doesn't mean I'm sitting here just chilling, not doing anything, but um, I have a purpose and I have unique talents that, and that's why I'm here on this earth. When I'm when my purpose is done, I won't be here anymore. When I think that way, that gives you a different perspective than um, why are they getting these blessings and I'm not. I love it. I love that. I and I love that you um, like. I really appreciate the spiritual nature of you and that you're willing to talk about that because not everybody is. And I think it's one of the things that makes you beautiful. So. One other thing that I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind, briefly touching on is in our previous conversation, you talked about a struggle that you get to experience that I know lots of people either listening or, or hopefully would listen to this uh, get to experience. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to touch on that a little bit and briefly just talk about like how it's affected you and how you move through it then and now. Okay. You remember what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I um, have bipolar depression. Okay. And it's something I was diagnosed later, later in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, probably eight, eight years ago. Now I, I struggled with depression before. I actually took off a whole WNBA season because of it. Wow. But, but I didn't know that I was um, the bipolar part of it. Gotcha. So, um, when I look back, and think about um, a lot of the relationships that I messed up or um, things I've said, bridges I've burned, it, it makes sense. And I, I take full responsibility, but, um, at the, but also I, it makes me sad and wonder what, you know, what if I knew, what if I knew then what I knew now. Once you discovered that this was a thing in your life and could be a thing that was causing some of this pain and, and relationship issues, how did, how did you start to move past that to, I guess, accept that fact in your life without beating yourself up? Or, and you may have, and, and you can let us know that, to find your way to help. Like, how do, how do you manage it on a daily basis? So how that was discovered is that I actually had um, three um, psych hospitalizations in a year. Okay. Um, two of that's them. A, that's a lot. That's a um, lot to experience. Yes. Two within a month, and one of them was um, involuntary. I think it's called 5150. You have to go. <laughs> they make you go in. Um, the police, police get you, and you go in for you know 72 hours. Wow. So, um, mandatory. So that's how that was discovered. And I told you I had a business. I own a business called Gang Shape. And um, that was from 2000 until 2012. And business... Um, was very stressful. My husband at the time was my business partner. We had two young children. I was putting in a lot of hours, you know, at least 50 hours, you know, a week, you know, drop the kids off of school, go to office, pick the kids up, up from school, take them to activities, finish working at home. Right. Um, in addition to um, running a business, being only two employees. So you did everything. And I'd had a lot of things that happened before that. Um, in 2009, um, I lost a baby, um, kind of just buried that, and um, just different stuff that I should have just give, given myself time to grieve, but I didn't. So everything kind of came to a head in, in 2011, and I admitted myself to the psych hospital. A lot of times you go to psych, you go to a psych hospital, it means that you are harm to yourself or harm to others. Right. And I'm harm to myself. And I was going to harm myself. And that's why um, that's, that was like rock, rock bottom for me. I didn't even want to live anymore. Right. Um, and I didn't, I just wanted to be out of this pain. And so when a lot of when people call someone weak who feels that way, my heart breaks because I've been suicidal. I had that pain be so much that I was thinking about how can I not be in this pain anymore? And it's, doubly hard if you are a christian because you feel guilty because the joy of the lord is supposed to be your strength and you're supposed to pray your mental your depression away that wasn't working in fact i couldn't even pray anymore i couldn't find words to pray right and then another dynamic of it is being you know african-american you know we we don't um 
do mental breakdowns. Uh, we don't talk about it. It's just it's being weak. And um, yeah, you can have high blood pressure, but if you have depression, you just need to shake it off. You're a strong black woman, and um, you put on that that front and you keep it moving. So for years, I was burying a lot of stuff that happened, and it just kind of just came to a head. And you know, September 24th, 2001, and that's when I my first hospitalization. Wow, that's a lot. And so um, in our previous conversation, you mentioned a book called, I believe it's called Black Pain. Mm -hmm. What's the title? Black Pain, It Only Looks Like I'm Not Hurting? Yeah. Yeah, um, I read that book. It was. Did you have a chance to check anything out about it? I haven't yet, but I, in another interview, I actually, someone was sharing similar feelings to what you just shared about, you know, um, their own depression and their own hospitalization and some of the things that you just described. And so that came to mind. I was like, oh my heck, I just had this conversation. And so I actually had passed the title on to other people since speaking with you. And so I just want to mention that here is that if, and you don't have to be black to read this book, but you know what, you might learn a few things in the process about the culture, the title being Black Pain. Mm -hmm. It only looks like we're not hurting. Do you remember the author? No, I think at first it might be Terry. We can, I, yeah, I can I, look that up, but I think I want to read it again, um, just see if I glean anything new from it. Yeah, and so I appreciate you again sharing. These are really vulnerable things, and I love that even in this deep sense of I really don't want to be here anymore, that you have this awareness that I feel like I'm. I'm going to hurt myself because of how, and you put yourself into the hospital. I think it's very courageous. And um, I, for one, am glad you're here because I know the things that you're sharing and what a gift and a, you know, a blessing to people who get to hear your story for the people who actually get to have one-on-one -on -one interactions with you. Like I think of all those little girls and what a cool thing. So kind of just like to wrap this up, bring it, bring us up to date of like, where you're at now, how you how you move through the bipolar so that you can stay on top of your game the best that you can and what you do on days that you're just like, this is just a crap day. And then let's let's just finish up with your message because you're a speaker and we want to help get you out there in front of more people. And so what your message is there. Thank you. So the biggest thing is, you know, self-care. And I'm, and I'm sure everybody knows that, but it's at times hard to do it. And what triggers me is stress, lack of sleep, when am I exercising? So what I do now is I'm, and I just actually, gosh, started exercising again. It took me a long time to recover and to be able to feel like I was fully functioning. Right. I'm talking probably not until 2016, 2017, where I felt it was about, you know, myself. It's taken, it's taken years. Yes. It's not, it's not an overnight or you're going to be fixed in a month or a year, like be willing to stick with the process. Yes. Um, go to therapy. Um, I actually, I have to take medication, which okay. I hate because, you know, my being in the profession I had, I had a, a gym. So it was all about, you know, food is your medicine and, right. you know, and we can, you can heal yourself through nutrition, but I have a biochemistry issue going on in my brain. So I have right. to, you know, take medicine, which every day I'm like, Oh, this medicine. And still, I still fight with that. Sure. And I appreciate the honesty in that because, again, I think there's a lot of people listening who will be able to identify and not feel so alone. So for me, it's been exercising, um, going back to church. Also, I'm still looking for a church. Um, like I said, medication. People have been praying for me, having good you know, people in my life. I have great – my parents are still alive. They're, they're awesome as well. And also um, just knowing, like, I'm an introvert anyway, so I, I prefer alone time. But there's sometimes, and I just, you know, today I can't be around people because <laughs> I am I think I might um, say some things I'm not supposed to. So just realizing, just being uh, in tune of how, personally, how I'm feeling. Yeah, I love that self-awareness. <laughs> so, um, so my bipolar is, um, it's not bipolar one where you, go out and spend you know, thousands of dollars or go have some kind of risky behavior. It's more of mood swings. I'm very, you know, just moody, you know, edgy. 
mm-hmm. yeah. which is actually not good when you're a parent. So that was another reason why I had to seek treatment because it wasn't good for my boys to be around that. So I, I'm just kind of, I can now tell when I'm feeling a certain way or when I'm has an edge to it and or, or if I'm or I won't do certain things like you know, that can't have a lot of caffeine me personally um, as well as I, I've got to get my arrest and exercising you know helps with that as well as saving off the you know, depression side of it because a lot of times the suicide rate for people who have bipolar it's actually it's, it's really high compared to just plain old depression so a lot of times that's why we get treat mistreated because we're we're more depressed than maybe the bipolar side and so okay you're depressed here's an antidepressant the antidepressant um can make you go into a manic gotcha. oh all these things they're so they feel like listening to it they feel so complicated and uh you know when you're when you're not one who's had to experience them. And so I really appreciate you sharing and just debunking some of the myths and, and sharing with, that, with us what your experience with it is and then what works for you. Because I can't help but think that some of the things that you share will work for other people as well. And, and if this is something, if you're listening to this and something that you experience, I highly encourage you to, you know, be vulnerable enough to try some of these things, get the help that you need. Um, you know, let go of the shame of, of having to take medicine for a while. Sometimes we just have got to do that while we do the exercising and get our nutrition back in order and our, and our spirituality back in order. Um, you know, it's just part of a part of the plan. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And uh, hopefully it will give hope to others who may be listening who just really need that extra light at this time. So let's, let's end with this. As a speaker, um, which I'm really excited to one day share a stage with you. And I'm like, in my mind, my wheels are spinning, like how and where to share a stage with Val Whiting, because I'm putting that out there right now. You and I are going to be sharing a stage right here in the, in the near future. And so folks pay attention for that. We'll let you know when that happens. But Val, as a speaker, you and I talked about six or seven things that you share as your message. So when someone hires you, what are the things that you will share with them when they listen to you? Like, what's your message? One of the main things, um, which I talk to myself every day and my children, is that you have a purpose. You're on this earth for a reason. And your purpose is not like anyone else's purpose. And no matter how big or how small your purpose could be, well, how big or small you feel it is, is big in God's eyes. Right. Um, so and you also, have a purpose. You have a purpose. I can't remember what else I said because <laughs> you have five things I said. I know, right? I'm, I'm I didn't write them down. <laughs> Here's my notes. So let me recant to you what you told me your purpose are because I totally got you on the spot. <laughs> I have notes. The first one is, uh, so you have a purpose, is that your story matters. Do you want to enhance that at all? Yes, I do, because I, I think why I thought about that is because I was trying to um, become a part of another group to speak with them, like be part of their speaker, speaker's bureau, and they didn't feel my story was um, ground-shaking enough, gotcha. what I had to offer. And that kind of hit me in an interesting way. I started doubting my story. And then I told my story to someone else, like, what are you talking about? Your story matters. And I had to have someone else validate what I'm telling people right. that their story matters. Even someone who's been through so much as I have been through um, can doubt that I, I can make a difference in my story doesn't matter. So, and again, um, I love that you say that. You're like, I've had all of these like kind of elite experiences, and yet there are times I still need a validation. And that I love that that's something that you're teaching and saying, this is something I had to learn. And on days, I still struggle with it. So your story matters. And I'm telling you, your story matters. And I'm excited to get it out there. Um, the next one was fail to succeed. Yes, you definitely have to fail forward and not backwards. I had plenty of opportunities when my, my dad put me in those situations um, to just give up. And those failures actually propelled me forward into what my purpose was on this earth and you know, in my journey. So even just advice to parents 
don't be afraid of your kid feeling what it feels like to get cut from a basketball team oh. or or if your child is not studying for a test and you know they're not going to do well they're not studying but you know maybe they have to feel that failure to know next time they got to put more time in so I love that let them feel the failure or yes. feel at all it's hard i mean I don't want my children to feel pain, but I think if I didn't feel or go through what I did as a child or as an adult, then there's no way I'll be able to share what I'm right. sharing with you now. Cool. So the next one, we've got two more. The next one is you never know who's watching. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You never know who's watching. Um, your actions have consequences, whether you feel you're on a big stage or not. I mean, one example is when I go to basketball games and I watch, I may go to a game to watch, you know, this, a great player. I watch how she's reacting to, um, to not to failure, but to things that are happening badly to her. Like if she's right. in trouble or if the coach puts her on the bench, how is she, is she a good teammate? So just me being, you know, not an expert coach going to the games, looking for these things. Imagine what, you know, a real college basketball coach is thinking about. So you never know who's watching. And I had, like I said, I had that experience with, you know, just with my Stanford basketball experience. Which seriously is one of my favorite stories. Um, and the last one, which I think is a really beautiful one to end on, and that is divine appointment, being in the right place at the right time. Yes. I don't believe there's any um, coincidences. I just feel that, um, you know, God sets, is setting everything up. Um, even your setbacks, he's setting you up for a comeback. And I, I, I just can't, there's so many things that's happened where I just happened to, um, I'll give you an example. My youngest, my oldest son got cut from a soccer team and he was at practice with my youngest son, just hanging around. And this coach comes out of nowhere and says, who are you? What team do you play for? Oh, you don't play for a team? Come practice with my team for a year. Um, and, you'll be a great player. This is just out of the blue. So ends up practicing with this guy for a whole year, makes a premier team. Every year he gets promoted to top team. So, I mean, he's getting from the C team to the B team to the A team. Now he's in a position where he could get a college scholarship to play soccer. Yeah. Um, last year he made all state, um, all league. But if he didn't, that coach didn't say, hey, hey, well, why don't you come practice with me? I mean, he just happened to be standing around. He was just standing around. He wasn't even, it wasn't even a soccer ball his, at his feet. He was just standing around watching my son, my younger son, his little brother practice. So I just don't believe, I believe there aren't any accidents. And um, if he didn't actually get cut from that team, he probably wouldn't have been in the position that he is now. Right. Division one soccer. I, like you, believe that there are no accidents. And, and in that, like this, being able to come in contact with you, not an accident. It was really exciting. And, and honestly, I was a little bit nervous to, to call you and talk with you just because I, too, am an introvert. Actually, actually, I'm an onvert. I do well as an extrovert, but, you know, I do like those retreating times to refill. And the shy parts of me tend to want to come out when I've got to make these phone calls and not got to. I choose to make the phone calls. And um, I knew that uh, I think in my soul, I knew that there would be a, this really neat connection with you as a person and, and your spirit. And so I don't find it an accident. all. I, I find a divine appointment. And I want to say thank you for taking time in that first phone call and agreeing to do the podcast and then being vulnerable and willing to share your heart stories and to share with your falling down times and, and some of the struggles that you've experienced so that we on the other end of it can have that just added bit of confidence that if she can do it, then I can do it as well. And just to have another resource. So thank you again for sharing time with us. Um, any, any last words? No, you summed it up greatly. <laughs> awesome. I love it when it happens. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you enjoyed any part of it, we want to remind you that we're the Living Courageously Exposed podcast and putting ourselves out there so that we can give voice and platform to other people's stories because we too believe that your story is important and that you matter and have a purpose. And if you've liked any part of this podcast, I invite you to share it with two people today, just two. And 
If you like it even more than that, then feel free to donate so that we can continue to bring you great content and great stories. And until then, we'll be great. And remember to believe in yourself or no one else can.